Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So let's start tonight with a story about our ability to enjoy music. Seems like a good story for a radio station. (laughs) And so researchers have discovered that humans seem to have a stronger preference for sounds with pitch, which is the harmonic sounds found in music. The research is part of Sound Health, a joint project between the National Institutes of Health and the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. And so what it's doing is it is exploring the role of music in health. We found that a certain region of our brains has a stronger preference for sound with pitch than macaque monkey brains, said Bevel Conway, Ph.D., investigator in the NIH's intramural research program and a senior author on the study, which was published recently in Nature Neuroscience. The results raise the possibility that these sounds, which are embedded in speech and music, may have shaped the basic organization of the human brain. Now, this one's kind of funny because it actually started out as a bet (laughs) between two researchers, Dr. Conway and Dr. Sam Norman uh, Hagnery. And so Dr. Conway actually Uh, didn't think there was going to be any difference. Uh, And so uh, Dr. Norman Hagnery was at the time a postdoctoral fellow, and uh, they were both at that time at MIT. Now, uh, he is now a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia University's Zuckerman Institute for Mind, Brain, and Behavior, and is actually the first author on the paper. Dr. Conway's team had been looking at how humans and monkeys control vision, finding that there was actually little difference between the two species. He assumed, therefore, that sound processing would be much the same. I told Bevel that we had a method for reliably identifying a region in the human brain that selectively responds to sound with pitch, said Dr. Norman Hagnery. And so, using fMRI to monitor their brain activity, they compared healthy volunteers and macaque monkeys as they listened to a series of harmonic sounds, or tones, as well as to toneless noises with the same frequency level of each harmonic tone. And so, at first, the images did look very similar, as they had with studies of the visual cortex. But when the researchers looked more closely, they found evidence suggesting that the human brain was highly sensitive to tones. The audio cortex in humans are much more responsive to tones. We found that human and monkey brains had very similar responses to sounds in any given frequency range. It's when we added tonal structure to the sounds that some of these same regions of the human brain became more responsive, said Dr. Conway. 
These results suggest that macaque monkeys may experience music and other sounds differently. In contrast, the macaque's experience of the visual world is probably very similar to our own. It makes one wonder what kind of sounds our evolutionary ancestors experienced. And so, of course, one of the big, big questions is how, of course, did things like uh, language evolve? And so that is a huge, huge area of research. Um, and it would be amazing to sort of figure out how that is. And then, of course, to further figure out how you go from having language to having music. And we know that music has been a part of humanity for a very, very long time. Um, you find in uh, Neanderthal burials and early uh, other hominid burials, you'll find uh, bone flutes and things like that. So we know that early humans were actually uh, experimenting with music. So music has definitely been with uh, the hominid line for a very long time, but it must have sort of developed sometime after we broke off from um, monkeys. I'd be interested to see the same uh, kind of research done with great apes, because is it also, are we unique from them as well? Um, so that would be really cool. And so, uh, but getting back to this particular story, uh, they continued to do research and it all supported those initial findings. And so when exposing humans and macaques to sounds that are more natural to the monkeys, for instance, macaque calls, they similarly found a greater response in humans than the macaques. This finding suggests that speech and music may have fundamentally changed the way our brain processes pitch, said Dr. Conway. It may also help explain why it has been so hard for scientists to train monkeys to perform auditory tasks that humans find relatively effortless. I think that's pretty hilarious. Um, that's one of those great moments of aha <laughs> when, you know, you've been sort of banging your head against the wall because you know that the monkey is smart and can do something, but it doesn't seem to want to do it. And it may be that literally its brain is not wired correctly to understand what you want it to do. So again, that'll be really interesting to do more uh, exploration of that because that would be really interesting to see if, uh, you know, that has research, uh, implications and so if that then is able to change the way that we work with monkeys in that kind of uh in those kinds of tasks so uh this is a really interesting project several other researchers have applied for funding from the nih sound health research grants and so they're hoping that they might eventually allow researchers to explore how music lights up that auditory cortex and makes our brain sensitive to musical pitch. And so it's really cool. And um, one of the things that I'm fascinated by is that uh, language acquisition and how and why did humans develop language when other animals have not Um and, you know, there are other animals that have, you know, some sort of ability to uh, communicate with others. Uh, we're finding that more and more. But humans have this unique ability to uh, read and especially to write and to be able to take these 
markings and make them understandable. Um, the whole idea of like language acquisition and the, the just craziness of, uh, you know, things that we take for total granted, the ability to, uh, to be able to, um, give information to other people to transmit information via a written piece of paper or uh, carving on a wall or a cuneiform tablet is just completely fascinating. And, um, you know, it's one of those very mundane things that we, I don't think a lot of people think about that. It's crazy that we can do this sort of thing, um, that humans are able to do that. And I think it's fascinating to find uh, sort of hints as to how some of this might have developed, uh, why some of this might be unique to us. And so, yeah, I think this is a really interesting story in that respect. And of course, I always think it's interesting as well uh, to make connections about music because I know I love music. I know that music is very important in my life, uh, as I is in many of yours, I suspect. And so anything that kind of shows why we like music, uh, is very cool. And of course, don't forget that, uh, the story from the other week of our parrot friend who, uh, has developed, uh, his own complete repertoire of, uh, dance moves to music. So he's clearly responding to something, but what is it between humans and parrots that make us uniquely interested in music? But anyways, let's move on to things we know a little bit more about. <laughs> uh, this is all just, you know, kind of talking about big concepts. So let's talk about something much more down to earth. Uh, so this is a more concrete connection between music and health. Uh, a new study suggests that listening to music might help patients calm themselves before certain procedures. The study suggests that patients who listened to music before having an injection of anesthesia had lowered level of anxieties equivalent to those who had taken a mild sedative. Doctors have been exploring the use of music to help with patients during surgery. So this is just one of those uh, studies. And so in this case, the researchers believe that music could help in particular with a procedure called a temporary nerve block. And so uh, during this procedure, a doctor injects anesthesia into a region of nerves that is often accompanied by a mild sedative uh, because, you know, people get a little bit upset when you're going to inject a large needle into parts of their body. Um, a lot of people don't like that. And sometimes, you know, it can be a painful injection. I know I've had painful anesthesia injections and would have loved to have had a mild sedative beforehand. Um, I'm still kind of scarred by a uh, hangnail I got once and whew, uh, it, it was, it was bad. Six, uh, six doses of Novocaine uh, was six too much in my opinion. Um, and so, uh, it would be great if music could have been used <laughs> instead of that. Uh, anyways, so an alternative to sedatives would be helpful in all cases because all drugs have side effects. Um, and so mild sedatives 
actually can cause trouble breathing, which of course will make you less uh, uh, sedated. And they can actually make people more frantic and agitated. Uh, so of course, these are very rare side effects, but you know, they're still a possibility. Now, of course, it's important to note that this doesn't mean that doctors are going to be turning to music over sedatives you know, right now. Uh, lead author Vina Graf, an anesthesiologist and pain specialist at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Medicine, noted that there have been no direct studies comparing the use of music to the standard treatment for anesthesia. And so this is just a really preliminary study. And so it's not, no one is recommending that you uh, try and do this right now. So uh, the study divided 160 relatively healthy patients into two groups, half having received a mild sedative before the nerve block and the other half listening to music with noise canceling head headphones. Now, based on a short survey, both sets of patients had similar drops in their anxiety levels, and doctors also felt that both procedures uh, went according to plan and were equally um, were equally went equally well. Those who were given a, sed a sedative had a slightly greater level of satisfaction, and the group that listened to music reported having more difficulty communicating with the doctor. The doctor also said they had trouble communicating with the people, but that's mostly likely to the noise canceling part of the headphones. Um, so you know, I know that when I'm wearing headphones or especially when my husband is wearing headphones as he just was a few moments ago, uh, before we, before I came in here, I turned to tell him something and I knew he wasn't going to hear it because he had his headphones on. Anyone can benefit from using music instead of pre-medication. It avoids the use of using medication altogether for sedation, uh, said Dr. Graf. And so it's definitely useful. Uh, she actually continued to say, uh, but some people who might benefit even more are individuals who really do not like the feeling of being sedated. Individuals who have several medical issues where the sedation might be more detrimental to them or same day surgeries where patients can recover quicker because they did not get much sedation. And so during this trial, the team used a song called Weightless by the eclectic UK band Marconi Union, uh, which was developed with sound therapists and released in 2011. But the researchers suggest that using the patient's favorite songs might work even better. And of course, the best way to explore this is to add music in clinical settings. So to this end, Penn's Medicine, Penn Medicine's Outpatient Surgery Center now offers disposable headphones for people who would like to listen to their favorite music during a procedure. I do know that there are other institutions trying to implement music in their day-to-day -day practice, but there is more work to be done on this front. I'm hoping that one day this will be a routine option that can be offered to all patients in the healthcare setting, she noted. So that's very cool. I like the idea of listening to music instead of having to be sedated. Um, I'm not sure. I think that obviously it depends on the procedure very much. So, and uh, I think that 
obviously you still need to have anesthesia because this isn't about getting rid of anesthesia at the moment. It's about getting rid of sedation that is on top of anesthesia. Um, and so I think that there is very much a difference between getting rid of the initial sedation and getting rid of the anesthesia. Uh, and so, um, but you know, a lot of times there's local anesthesia and you could, instead of being sedated, just be listening to your favorite music. And that could very well keep you calm and distracted in a way that would be just as useful. So I like that. I'm always for less sedation and less anesthesia. Um, I always tell people I have a high pain threshold. I think I do, but I just think it's easier. Uh, if I have tiny cavities, I won't get the Novocaine. It's just so much easier uh, to not and not have to deal with that feeling for hours afterwards. So yeah, um, I am totally pro music, but obviously I would only do it if it had actually been recommended by a doctor. <laughs> and speaking about doing things while not being recommended by a doctor. <laughs> that goes right into our next uh, story, which is about a change in uh, health procedures that I don't think many people have gotten the memo on. I certainly didn't know until I read this the other day. Nearly 30 million Americans older than 40 take a daily aspirin to prevent cardiovascular disease, or CVD. Nearly half of Americans older than 70 years of age, an estimated 10 million people also without CVD, take a daily aspirin despite guidelines specifically against this practice. Now, of course, it isn't surprising uh, given the, like I said, the lack of clear public health guidelines uh, being available to the average person. Like I said, I read a lot of things uh, about science and medicine, and I didn't know that they had changed the guidelines. Uh, and so obviously for years, a daily aspirin regimen was the norm. Tons of people uh, had you know, tons of people were doing it. There were always ads on the television. Now that I think about it, I haven't seen an ad on the television, but I don't watch television with ads very often. Uh, and so, you know, there was always low dose aspirin being, uh, you know, uh, advertised as specifically for the prevention of cardiovascular disease. But it turns out that in 2018, three major clinical trials suggested that there was little benefit and a consistent bleeding risk associated with daily aspirin usage. Again, this is in people who don't have a history of cardiovascular disease. Uh, and so the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology have both issued new clinical practical guidelines uh, earlier this year to change a daily aspirin regimen for people older than 70 or with increased bleeding risk who don't have who do not have diagnosed uh, cardiovascular disease to contraindicated, which means don't do it. <laughs> Although prior American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology guidelines recommended aspirin only in persons without elevated bleeding risks, the 2019 guidelines now explicitly recommend against aspirin use among those over the age of 70 who do not have existing heart disease or stroke, said senior author Christine C. Wee, uh, 
MD MPH, who is a general internist and researcher at BIDMC and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Our findings suggest that a substantial portion of adults may be taking aspirin without their physician's advice and potentially without their knowledge. That's another big thing. Always tell doctors what you're taking, even if it's, you know, silly, even if you think it's silly, any supplements, any, uh, if you are smoking marijuana, if you are uh, doing other drugs, your physician needs to know. <laughs> if you're taking daily aspirin, your physician needs to know. If you're taking melatonin, your physician needs to know. Um, <laughs> just anything that's really important because there's so many weird interactions that things can have. I mean, you know, the famous one is, of course, the interactions that a lot of medicines have with grapefruit. Who would have ever thought that grapefruit would be a huge issue with taking pharmaceuticals? But it is. <laughs> and so um, that's just a general rule of thumb. Always tell your doctor what you're taking, uh, especially if it's something like a daily aspirin. Um, because that could really have uh, severe implications if they are going to then give you something that, for instance, thins your blood, because aspirin is already thinning your blood. Um, and so if you were then to have an accident, it could be very, very bad, which is part of the reason why they're telling um, people over the age of 70 not to do this, because if they were to fall or if they were to injure themselves in some other way, they're going to have more bleeding and more bleeding in people of advanced age is not good. I mean, more bleeding in anyone is not good, but the older you get, the less able you are to sort of uh, sustain yourself when you're losing large amounts of blood. And so the researchers looked at data from the 2017 National Health Interview Survey, which is a nationally representative survey of U.S. households. They looked at aspirin usage prim primarily for prevention of CVD and found that approximately 29 million people over the age of 40 without cardiovascular disease were taking aspirin daily. Of those, 6.6 .6 million of them did so without a doctor's recommendation. And so, of course, some doctors had been recommending it because until this past year, it was a recommendation that, you know, for some people, if they thought someone might be on the sort of edge of developing cardiovascular disease, they might have told them to do it. Um, but now they're, the um, American Heart Disease, I'm sorry, the American Heart Association is really trying to sort of pull back on that. And... Uh, so even more worrying is that nearly half of adults 70 years or over, nearly half who do not have a history of CVD are taking a daily aspirin. They also found, and this is even worse, that having a history of peptic ulcer disease did not decrease aspirin intake, which is of course another giant red flag because aspirin can absolutely irritate your stomach. And if you have a history of peptic ulcers, don't take aspirin. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. And so um, I think that they're really finding that they need to do some better messaging about this, which is part of the reason why I'm talking about it, um, because I think it's really important to get that out into the space uh, of 
you know, get that out to regular people because again, I totally didn't know that that was a thing <laughs> until I read this. And so, yeah, it's definitely important to talk about this. Our findings show a tremendous need for healthcare practitioners to ask their patients about ongoing aspirin use and to advise them about the importance of balancing the benefits and harms, especially among older adults and those with prior peptic ulcer disease, said lead author Colin O'Brien, MD, who is also a senior internal medicine resident at BIDMC and a fellow at Harvard Medical School. Now, just to be clear, again, uh, if you do have a history of cardiovascular disease and it has been recommended by your doctor to take a daily aspirin, of course you should continue to do that. Uh, this is really about people who do not have that um, and who have not uh, told their doctors about the fact that they're taking a daily aspirin, you know, probably just in case. Um, because again, I cannot iterate enough how important it is to tell your doctor all of the medications that you're taking, all of the substances that you are putting into your body that are not regular food and drink. Um, and so, uh, also tell them if you like grapefruit, I don't know, uh, be more thorough than you think you need to be. <laughs> uh, because a lot of people die in this country uh, and in other countries, but in this country uh, from issues due to complications with medicines and uh, potentially having been taking medicines that their doctors didn't know they were taking and thus having issues with that. Um, because again, a lot of drug interactions, there are drug interactions all over the place and some of them are not intuitive. So yeah. Let's let's shift gears now <laughs> completely and uh, talk about something that is uh, really cool. Um, I just think it's really a neat story and uh, it's about shiny things. So, you know, <laughs> I am part crow after all. Um, and so back in 2006, a series of tiny glass beads were found inside ancient clamshells. They were, they were found when Mike Meyer, lead author of the new study and a researcher at Harrisburg University of Science and Technology, was an undergrad. He and his team were actually looking for shells of single-celled organisms known as benthic foraminifera. I know how to say this. <laughs> it's foraminifera. And so instead, they found these fossilized clams, mostly southern quahogs, uh, which contained tiny glass beads, or glass, quote unquote. Uh, and so since there was no real ex explanation at the time, uh, and, you know, you're an undergrad, you have other things you're doing, and they were actually looking for uh, something else, they were, you know, basically put on a shelf to take for someone to take up the mystery at a later date. And so this is the later date. Uh, Meyer recently decided to take up the challenge. So with colleagues Roger Portel and Peter Harries, Meyer found evidence that suggests that they are actually microtectites. And so uh, those are formed by an e a meteorite impact. 
and so it suggests that they are the first celestial remnants that have been discovered in clamshells. <laughs> uh, they used scanning electron microscopy, backscatter imaging, and X-ray spectroscopy to explore the structure and composition of the spheres. And so the ancient clams had been excavated from a Sarasota County quarry in Florida. And again, it was quite a surprise to find these microtectites in the material. Um, and so the new research is published in Meteoritics and Planetary Science. Um, I just really love the title of some of the journals that are out there. Um, they're just really fun, even though... Uh, Often, if you open the page and start trying to read an article, you will very quickly get lost uh, in all of the technical jargon. But uh, a lot of them have really fun sounding names. Make good band names. <laughs> Anyways, uh, and so uh, they're still in the process of uh, doing all of the research, uh, but it suggests that there was a previously unknown meteorite strike off of the coast of Florida between two and three million years ago. This is the first report of microtectites in Florida, and one of only a few findings of space debris found in the state, said Dr. Meyer. These spheres may also help us date the shell beds that, were, that they were found in, as we don't have a precise age for them. Now, the microtectites are small, spherical, clear, sort of glass we say beads, but it just means because they look like beads, um, but they're just little spheres. Um, apparently, they're often, microtectites are often also uh, teardrop shaped, but these ones are very much uh, round. When a large enough impact occurs, the impactor, a meteorite or comet or whatnot, mostly vaporizes, but so does the rock and soil it hits, said Meyer. Most rocks are composed of minerals that contain silica, so there's a lot of it to melt. That melted debris flies away from the impact site and cools as it travels through the air, usually giving it an aerodynamic shape of some sort. Um, so again, uh, you know, either circular or teardrop, things like that. And so the tiny bits of material eventually rain back down, uh, usually on the earth, and so then they eventually reach the ocean by sort of the usual processes of erosion, uh, wind and water moving things around because they're basically in the soil. And so, of course, once they're in the water, they can be incorporated into clams and other marine animals. Volcanoes were ruled out via the shape. Ours were too rounded, mostly, and composition, Myers noted. There is the slightest possibility that they could have been formed from uh, human-produced reflective paint or coal ash, but the shapes of our material were too uniform, and since we found them in these closed clam fossils, which have been closed and cut off from their surroundings for millions of years, it seems unlikely that any sort of human contamination would have had time to get in there. <laughs> so yeah, it's probably not human beads. And so uh, the next step for Myers is to hopefully get a chance to use argon-argon radiometric dating to find out when these uh, spheres were created in order to test whether the ages match uh, to be able to actually 
match the age of that layer. Um, and so, like he was saying before, they don't really know when that layer is from. So if they can get uh, an age for the spheres, then they can get an age for that layer. Um, and it actually turns out that they're in several layers. And so that is going to be really interesting to find out. Um, and so basically they're in a couple of layers and if they can get them to figure out, they want to know basically whether or not, uh, there were several impacts or if there was one impact and there were a bunch of the, uh, microtectites and then they, over the years, uh, basically, or over the millennia, possibly kind of, uh, eroded out of a deposit. And uh, just as a note, uh, a lot of people when reporting about this are using the name, quote unquote, Cosmic Pearls, which is, of course, a very cool name and also a good band name. Uh, but it's, of course, not really accurate. Real pearls are actually specifically made of calcium carbonate and are created by the clam or other living mollusk. And so, uh, they definitely have to be created by living animals. Okay, so let us take a break and then we will come back and we will talk about a fun uh, story about something that was discovered by mistake and which has a local connection. Uh, so do hang out for that and we will be back after a few uh, PSAs and show promos. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be found upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Next to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock. Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, 
Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Great weather means it's time for kids to go out and play. But kids aren't the only ones outdoors. Ticks that spread Lyme disease and other infections are also active in the spring and summer. CDC reminds you and your children to wear insect repellent, bathe or shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check for ticks daily. If you've been bitten by a tick and developed fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to talk about a... uh, We're going to move on from a story about something that was languishing in storage and take up another big theme in science, which is discoveries by mistake or accident. And so scientists are humans, and they obviously make mistakes, Sometimes these mistakes are disasters, (laughs) and other times they lead to some sort of breakthrough or a new substance. Uh, We all know about things like uh, post-it notes and uh, penicillin and uh, um, I think Silly Putty was one of those too. (laughs) But in any case, uh, this particular story is about scientists at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, uh, which were led by Thomas Russell who is a distinguished professor of polymer science and engineering uh, at UMass Amherst. So he's actually out there on a um, exchange at the moment. And so they have created the first permanently magnetic liquid. This is a kind of a big deal. (laughs) The droplets can morph into various shapes and can be externally manipulated to move around. 
Russell notes that while we typically think of things, of, think of magnets as being solid, we can make magnets that are liquid and they could conform to different shapes and the shapes are really up to you. And so uh, the shapes can be anything from a sphere to a cylinder or a pancake or even, as he pointed out, a sea urchin. Um, <laughs> that was a bit of an interesting uh, pull, but I like sea urchins. They're very cute. So the researchers were experimenting with 3D printing liquids. And we actually talked about this uh, particular research uh, a couple of weeks or months ago. Um, so we've actually already talked about uh, Dr. Russell uh, and his work at Lawrence Berkeley. Uh, and so this is a new and fun, interesting, an interesting thing that he has also done, which is also pretty breakthrough uh, work. So he's clearly... Um, you know, going to have a good publishing uh, career for a bit. <laughs> and so um, they accidentally created this magnetic liquid. What they were trying to create were materials that were a solid, but have the characteristics of liquids for use in various energy applications. So the liquid is actually discovered by postdoctoral student and the lead author, Shubo Liu, uh, when he noticed a 3D material, which was made from magnetized iron oxides, uh, that it spun around in unison on a magnetic stir plate. The team realized that the entire construct, not just the particles themselves, had become magnetized. And so the team used 3D printing techniques to create millimeter-sized droplets from water, oil, and iron oxides. Because the iron oxide particles bind with the surfactants, um, which reduce the surface tension of a liquid, which is, of course, in this case, water, and the surfactant is the oil, uh, the surfactants create a film around the water with iron oxide particles embedded in that film like a barrier, and the rest are actually contained within the water. The drops were then magnetized by being placed near a magnetic coil. When they took the magnetic coil away, they were surprised to see that the droplets retained their magnetism. Now, this is different from ferrofluids, which you might be thinking about, um, and which there are great videos uh, about ferrofluids. They make very cool shapes when you play with them. Um, but they are only magnetic in the presence of an external magnetic field. And so for this new material, when the particles of iron oxide were aligned in the magnetic field... There wasn't enough room for them to move around, and so they remained aligned in that outer, um, in that outer film, and thus kept them being magnetic. But what was interesting and still kind of a mystery uh, is that the particles inside of the liquid also stayed aligned, even though they had room to move. Now, again, the researchers aren't fully sure how exactly they do that. <laughs> uh, they're not quite sure why they're retaining in a magnetic alignment when they do have room to move. Uh, and so they're hoping that they can figure this out. And if they can, then this will basically represent a whole new state of magnetic materials, uh, according to Russell, which is, you know, kind of a big deal. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's definitely interesting and definitely exciting to think about this completely new kind of uh, material science that could come from these magnetic liquids. 
And so there is a lot of really interesting science going on in uh, sort of materials science and a lot of really cool things with 3D printing and with just really cutting edge stuff. Um, that's really, if you want to just have a sort of feel good moment about really interesting and cool things that are being developed, um, it's definitely material science that you want to sort of look into um, because that's pretty much one of the few places where you're not going to find a ton of uh, things that are probably super depressing um, because, you know, in biology and in zoology and in a lot of other sciences right now, there's a lot of depressing stuff as much as there's really cool stuff. Um, and as you know, I try and keep this space fairly upbeat as much as I can. Uh, so let's talk about birds and flying in crosswinds. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, new, there's new research on how they're able to do this. Uh, Stanford University mechanical engineer David, David Lentink uh, and his colleagues studied lovebirds as they flew in a crosswind tunnel that allows customizable wind and light settings. They wanted to see how birds were able to fly in crosswinds crosswinds and in both high and low light conditions with such ease because of course humans in planes it takes much more uh, they need to have sustained concentration they need advanced computer aids to do a lot of calculate calculating and it's just you know it's hard um, and so the research was published in the proceedings of the national academy of science uh, and it could help develop more robust algorithms for autonomous aerial robots. Now, of course, <laughs> whether or not autonomous aerial robots are a good thing or not, uh, there is definitely a lot of column A, a lot of column B on that. Um, if you've seen some of the YouTube videos of, for instance, someone having attached a gun to a, uh, <laughs> to a drone, um, yeah. Uh, but that is an argument to be had on the next show, which is civil politics. Um, but I actually know that tonight they have a uh, particular show uh, ready for you as soon as we wrap up here. So you should definitely continue to listen. The wonderful DJ Wendy, uh, who has Subculture, which is the amazing music show that comes right after civil politics, will be a guest and they'll be talking about why religion seems to want to have an opinion on who does on who does what and when and who they love and all sorts of other things uh, and why that's such a problem in a country that pretends that it has a separation between religion and the state, uh, but clearly favors some religions over others and definitely favors people who have a religion over those who do not. Um, so do continue to listen. Uh, they will be up at seven. Uh, but let's get back to how awesome birds are uh, and how evolution has basically made them incredibly cool and allowed them to become experts at flying despite crosswinds and low visibility. And so this is actually the first study of how birds are able to orient their bodies, necks, and heads in order to fly through 45-degree crosswinds over short distances regardless of the visibility. So the lovebirds were able to manage flight throughout all of the light conditions despite those extreme crosswinds. The researchers found that the birds navigate by stabilizing and fixating their and fix fixating, yes, their gaze on their goal. And so uh, they then angle their bodies on a yaw 
into the crosswind. Now, uh, this fixating on a goal actually reminded me of how dancers are taught to do this uh, to prevent getting dizzy when executing a series of turns. So uh, you're always told to kind of snap your head around and continue to look at one particular place in order to uh, keep yourself from getting too dizzy. And so they also found that uh, staying on course in the yaw requires the birds to contort their neck by 30 degrees or more. So again, very much like that same uh, metaphor where you're having to sort of keep your neck continually moving uh, in order to kind of keep yourself uh, on point. And so when modeling the birds, they found that that neck control is very active. It's moving very um, you know, they're, they're working on moving that neck, but the body is actually reorientating uh, passively. And so the bird isn't actually even really doing much work there. And uh, so Kathy Dixon, a program officer in uh, the National Science Foundation's Division of Integrative Organismal Systems, uh, which funded the study, notes that this integrative research uses innovative technological advancements to bring studies of animal movement from closely controlled conditions in the laboratory into the field, where unsteady and intermittent flows are more than the norm. The work provides unexpected insight into how birds adjust their bodies while encountering crosswinds and navigate through unstable airflows, even at night with limited visual cues. Um, so for instance, you know, owls <laughs> are able to basically move around and do this sort of thing in very low light, but you know, the lovebirds didn't do too bad either. Uh, so let us finish up tonight with a weird story. Uh, it's not necessarily that weird. Um, it just, you know, if you pitch it the way that it was pitched and the way that I've kept it pitched, uh, it is a little bit weird. So we're going to stick with nature, uh, but we are going to switch over to the plant kingdom. Now, we've talked about it. Plants do not have feelings, uh, so don't worry about it. Uh, but they are, nonetheless, super amazing, uh, often beautiful and completely worth studying and loving and protecting. And yeah, even the vampiric ones. <laughs> And so in New Zealand, researchers have found what they are calling a vampire stump. The stump, which is a low leafless mass of wood, uh, which looks pretty much like any typical dead tree stump, is all that remains of a cowrie tree, which is a species of conifer that can grow up to 165 feet tall. Um, but basically all that's left is a couple of foot tall uh not even, I think it's only about maybe one and a half feet tall, uh, stump and it looks dead. It absolutely does. Um, but that's just above the surface of the soil because beneath the soil, it is part of a forest superorganism. It has tapped into a network of intertwined roots that share resources across a community of dozens or even hundreds of trees. It has grafted its roots to those of the neighboring healthy trees and at night feeds on water and nutrients that they have collected during the day. Very vampiric. Um, basically, it's kind of acting as a parasite. Um, a parasite doesn't create any of its own nutrients. It takes them all from a host, um, much like a vampire. <laughs> uh, but the question is, why are the neighboring trees allowing it to continue to feed? 
For the stump, the advantages are obvious. It would be dead without the grafts, because it doesn't have any green tissue of its own, said co-author Sebastian Luzwinger, an associate professor at the Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. Uh, but why would the green trees keep their grandpa tree alive on the forest floor while it doesn't seem to provide anything for its host trees? So, Lusinger and colleagues tried to find out. They set up sensors to measure the movements of water and nutrient-rich sap through the stump and its two closest neighbors. It turns out that they are actually drinking water at exact opposite times. During the day, the active trees transported water up from their roots and into their leaves while the stump stayed dormant. At night, the stump circulated water and sap through itself. Now, the trees were taking turns of a sort, serving as separate pumps in a single hydraulic network. Now, of course, there are several reasons why this might be happening. Um, it may be that the stump is an important bridge to other trees in the network. It may be that it has been connected for so long that the other trees basically uh, haven't noticed it's not contributing because nutrients still flow through it and on to the rest of the network. Or it could be something that we simply do not yet understand at all. Um, and so regardless of how it's working, it's made Lusinger and his colleagues think. Possibly we are not really dealing with trees as individuals, but with the forest as a superorganism, he said. Now, of course, one benefit from this sort of extended network could be protection from droughts, for instance. If the trees that have less access to water than their neighbors are able to share, the forest overall might have a better chance of surviving. But, of course, there are also obvious potential drawbacks. For instance, cowrie trees are threatened by a soil-borne pathogen that causes a disease called cowrie dieback. If the pathogen were to spread along a large of, network of trees, it could easily kill a large part of a forest. Now, of course, for now, as with most things in science, more research is needed. <laughs> And I think I've talked actually before about how underneath the soil, there is a lot more going on than we generally realize. All over the world, there are networks like this. Some are this kind of direct tree root to tree root. Um, sometimes there are tree roots to their uh, offspring. Uh, and sometimes they are using mycelium, uh, which is the actual body of mushrooms and uh, fungi. And, you know, there are other things going on as well. So, of course, remember that mushrooms are actually the fruiting body. So the things that you see above the ground are just the uh, basically the fruit of um, fungi. And so actually everything that's going on with it is actually in that mycelium, which is below ground and doing all sorts of fun things down there. Okay, uh, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics. I think it's going to be a real uh, fun show. Well, fun for certain values. Um, but Wendy is great, and uh, you should definitely stay tuned. So um, have a good night, and I will be back next week with more Science and Skepticism. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro and thank you for listening.